Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. You can find new episodes of the show every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. We will be together and feel the heavenly fire and accomplish the Lord's love. And nothing less. Children will resolve. You're helping me will resolve. The clip you just heard was taken from an audio tape recorded by Warren Jeffs, the infamous leader of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today we're going to take a deep dive into Warren Jeffs and the FLDS. The FLDS's estimated 10,000 followers across North America consider it to be an authentic religious denomination. But we're going to take a look at this fundamentalist sect through the lens of cult psychology, particularly because the FLDS is one of the most heavily criticized religious groups in modern history. This is largely due to the fact that this particular sect of Mormonism practices polygamy and underage marriages. Warren Jeffs, the religion's self-proclaimed prophet, had at least 80 wives when he was arrested in 2006. In the previous clip, Jeffs was preaching about how God was pleased with the multiple wives he had taken. So it goes without saying that Warren Jeffs' life was anything but ordinary. In the first part of this two-part series, we'll examine Jeffs' early life and his rise to the top of the FLDS. In part two, we'll discuss how the FLDS changed under Warren's leadership and how those changes made Warren one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives. Before we begin with Warren Jeffs, however, it is important to differentiate the Fundamentalists' Latter-day Saints from the official Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two sects are quite different, and in our research and experience, members of the official LDS Church are kind people with close-knit families who are committed to making the communities they live in a better place. Exploring the differences between the two divisions and examining the leaders who came before Warren Jeffs will help us understand why many people consider the FLDS a cult. The Mormon Church didn't always have two branches, but it was controversial from the beginning. It was officially founded by Joseph Smith Jr. in 1830 in New York. Smith told his first followers that when he was 14 years old, he had gone to the woods to pray, and God and Jesus Christ visited him from heaven. Smith explained that God wanted Joseph to create the true Church of Jesus Christ on earth. In 1827, three years before Smith went public with his religion, he claimed that he had another vision of the angel Moroni, who showed him golden tablets engraved with the process for restoring Melchizedek priesthood. This knowledge ordained Smith as the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not long after his encounter, Smith wrote down his visions and encounters in a volume of scripture he called the Book of Mormon. In this text, Smith explained that around 600 BC, the Israelites who chose to leave Jerusalem came to North America where they settled at God's request. After Jesus Christ's crucifixion and death, he appeared to these settlers to tell them that God sent out many prophets to spread the church's word. 
Joseph Smith declared himself one of these prophets based on his visions and communication with heavenly beings. It wasn't long after the publication of the Book of Mormon that Smith welcomed his first practitioners. In the beginning, the church was unified, and without the fundamentalist-slash-contemporary distinctions, most members, including Smith, practiced polygamy. The early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints viewed plural marriages as a commandment from God, and though not all men chose to take more than one wife, those that did were revered in the religious community. In fact, Smith preached that any man who married at least three wives would reach the highest level in heaven. Smith preached his religion fervently, despite the criticisms he received from other Christians. It's important to note that Smith was a powerful religious leader, but he certainly wasn't a cult leader. He cared for his followers' well-being. He built a strong, safe community for his followers and began the church's tradition of abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, coffee, and tea. He encouraged his fellow Mormons not to believe that the church was real because he was a prophet, but rather he was a prophet because the church was real. Smith, however, was also known to be a bit impulsive and temperamental. He often got into brawls with non-Mormons over their criticisms of his faith. Because of their controversial belief in polygamy, Smith and his followers were constantly on the move, and they were rarely welcomed in the communities they visited. However, in 1839, Smith led his congregation to Commerce, Illinois, where he managed to get elected as the town's mayor shortly after. Smith changed the town's name to Nauvoo, which means beautiful place in Hebrew. This brazen act raised tensions with non-Mormons in Nauvoo and the surrounding areas. In the locals' eyes, Smith and his followers were taking too much power. It began a series of skirmishes between the Mormons and the other townspeople. In fact, one of the church's run-ins with angry locals was what led to Joseph Smith's death. In 1844, just 14 years after establishing his religion, a group of non-Mormons attacked Nauvoo in an attempt to reclaim it from Smith. Smith responded by using the Mormon militia to protect the city, but both he and his brother Hiram were arrested in the skirmish. After Smith was arrested on charges of treason and destruction of public property, he awaited trial in the local jail in Carthage, Illinois. There were rumors floating through the town that the locals weren't content to let the justice system handle Joseph Smith. They were going to take matters into their own hands. Fearing for their leader's safety, several members of the church smuggled a gun to Smith for protection. The day the angry townspeople marched on the jail, Smith began firing into the crowd. However, his bravado only served to get him fatally shot, and Joseph Smith and his brother died in Carthage in what his followers called a blaze of glory. With Smith gone, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints needed a new leader. Enter Brigham Young. Though there were several men vying to be the next leader, Young declared himself the new prophet upon Smith's passing. He had charm, confidence, devotion. He was charismatic. Now, Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Brigham Young was indeed charming and respected in his church community. People found it easy to follow his clever sermons. Young preached passionately about community and togetherness. His goal was to persuade the church followers to trust him and the church wholeheartedly. Under Brigham Young's leadership, we can see Mormonism begin to split into two schools of thought, the quiet but devout patrons of the LDS Church and the more fanatical fundamentalists. 
As a survivalist and frontiersman, Young was clever enough to see that not everyone was welcoming those practicing polygamy. To keep members of the church from wavering in their loyalty while under the scrutiny of the public, he began to preach about relocating to a territory they could build in their own beliefs. By 1847, he and about 60,000 Mormons began to emigrate west in search of acceptance and religious freedom. Along the way, pockets of the members settled in various areas across the country. They elected their own community leaders, and these divisions became alternative sects of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, the largest group followed Young all the way to Utah. The loss of members and the hardship of the journey took their toll on Young. In their new home, he placed heavy emphasis on community and family. Young also grew bolder and darker with his preaching. It was in Utah that Young married the last of his 53 wives and introduced blood atonement. This practice was new to Mormons, but Young insisted that some sins were so egregious that even the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough to save the sinner. Apostasy, the act of leaving the Mormon faith, was one of these sins. Young preached that those who committed such sins would have to be killed, thus spilling their own blood as a sort of sacrificial offering for forgiveness. LDS followers were already wary of non-Mormons, but Brigham Young's more radicalized preaching and disdain for anyone outside the Mormon faith may have exacerbated this. Many believed that this was what led to the Mountain Meadows Massacre. For Mormons, this event was what began the church's longtime quarrel with the U.S. government. On September 7, 1857, a group of Mormons attacked a wagon train of pioneers headed for California. The members of the church were not comfortable with the outsiders passing through their territory, and they exchanged fire with the pioneers until September 11th. On that day, the pioneers surrendered under the promise of safe passage through the rest of the Mormons' territory. However, when the pioneers left their cover and hiding spaces, the attacking Mormons slaughtered 120 men, women, and children. The Mormon church has since officially apologized for the event. However, at the time, they denied any involvement. Despite correspondences between Young and the elders of the other LDS communities, in which Young suggested that he had a solution for outsiders entering Mormon territory. Locals buried the remains of the wagon party at the site and had a cross made from trees in the area. The burial marker was engraved with the words, quote, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, end quote. The marker stood for two years before it was mysteriously taken down. The non-Mormon locals protested that Brigham Young and several of his close followers traveled to the site to destroy the marker while shouting, Vengeance is mine, and I have taken a little. It's no wonder that by 1862, the U.S. government had placed a watchful eye on the Mormon church and publicly criticized its practices, specifically polygamy and blood atonement. Laws were proposed to prevent plural marriages, but the church fought back. Brigham Young continued to speak out against the outsider's hatred for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but his health was rapidly deteriorating. On August 29, 1877, Young died of a combination of cholera and a ruptured appendix. The most devout followers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continued to push back against government interference in their religion. They took their case to the U.S. Supreme Court citing the First Amendment's protection of religious freedom. However, the court ruled that while religious belief was protected by law, religious practice was not. 
the Supreme Court's decision in 1879 officially made polygamy illegal. How did the church handle this development? Well, church leaders told members that God's law was higher than the laws of man. The legislation banning polygamy was largely ignored, and the practice of plural marriage continued. The Mormon Church's disregard for the law angered officials in Washington, D.C., and in 1887, Congress passed the Edmunds-Tucker Act, just as the church's fourth president, Wilford Woodruff, was coming into power. Under the Edmunds-Tucker Act, the Church of Latter-day Saints was forced to disincorporate, and any property valued over $50,000 that was owned by LDS was confiscated by the government. It also made polygamy punishable by $500 to $800, between roughly $13,500 and $21,600 in today's money, and imprisonment up to five years. By 1890, LDS President Wilford Woodruff began to preach a calmer message to his followers. He understood what Brigham Young did not. The Church of Latter-day Saints had to change in order to survive. Even then, Utah was a center for the Mormon faith, and the church's members made up a large portion of its population. When Utah began to petition Congress for statehood, the government saw another opportunity to put an end to polygamy. Congress replied that before it would allow the territory to become a state, it would have to end the practice for good. The Utah Mormons were also required to disband their political party, the People's Party. These were the two most important stipulations for Utah to gain statehood that were specifically directed at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Woodruff accepted that times were changing and the church needed to change with them. In 1890, he sent out word that officially denounced polygamy within Mormonism, and he issued a manifesto that anyone who continued the practice would be excommunicated. And that was where the true split of the LDS and the FLDS sects happened. Members of the official LDS church do not believe in polygamy, blood atonement, or any other practices that could cause people physical harm. But those who refused the new mandates called themselves fundamentalists and traveled outside of Salt Lake City to the Mormon adjoining settlements in Hilldale, Utah and Colorado City, Arizona, that would eventually become known collectively as Short Creek. That's right. Many of the members who already had multiple wives did not want to give up their families. Their entire belief system was based around the idea that polygamy was the will of God and that any deviation would be blasphemous. Those who left the church for the fundamentalist colonies did so because they wanted to abide by Joseph Smith's original teachings. Just to be clear, in the official Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it is acknowledged that all prophets are fallible, and not everything a prophet proclaims is church doctrine. Divine revelations received by a prophet go through a process to become an official part of the church's teachings. That's why not all of the original teachings of Joseph Smith and other prophets are espoused by the modern Mormon church. That's right. And over the years, the fundamentalist teachings deviated further and further away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The FLDS became a fiercely private group with strict beliefs and a disdain for those outside their religion. The community even dug a series of tunnels and bunkers into the mountainside to protect themselves against government raids. The FLDS Church also developed a different hierarchy than that of the traditional Mormon Church. They decided they would be led by a group of men called a priesthood council. As this tradition continued and new members were added, the longest sitting member would be recognized as the senior member. 
if a senior member appointed another member to the council, those newcomers were considered high priest apostles. Yet even with the growing paranoia and isolation, the FLDS would not be the infamous cult we know today without the Jeffs family. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, back to cults. Rulon, Warren's father, was initially raised as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But as we stated previously, the Mormon Church banned polygamy in 1890 in order for Utah to gain statehood, and all members who refused to give up the practice were excommunicated. The Jess family did not want to give up their affiliation with the church or their multiple wives. So after Rulon was born in 1909, they relocated to Short Creek from Salt Lake City, where they continued practicing polygamy as part of the fundamentalist community. Standing over six feet tall, Rulon cut an intimidating figure, but his easy smile and quick charm endeared people to him. These factors helped Rulon quickly climb in the ranks of the FLDS. By April 19, 1945, at the age of 36, he was ordained as a high priest apostle in the church. Things seemed to be going well for the fundamentalists and for the Jess family. However, the Arizona Department of Public Safety and Arizona National Guard were gearing up to take action against the fundamentalist community. Finally, on the morning of July 26, 1953, over 50 law enforcement agents gathered outside the Short Creek compound. The plan was to take the community by surprise and make the arrests quickly. However, the FLDS leaders had been tipped off. When the police vehicles drew near, there were three dynamite explosions just off the road to signal the officers' approach. The signal worked. When the officers began their raid, they found only women and children in the homes. All of Shore Creek's men had outfitted themselves in their best clothing and gathered in front of the schoolhouse. The leader was waving an American flag, and all the men were singing God Bless America as a show of peaceful protest against the invasion. But the officers were not swayed. They served warrants to 122 adults that day. The men accused of polygamy and other crimes were sent to a nearby jail to await trial while many of the women were sent to Phoenix, Arizona. The plural marriage children in the community became wards of the state and were spread out to foster homes. The media reported heavily on the event, but not in the way that law enforcement might have hoped. Instead of painting the members of the FLDS as polygamous lawbreakers, they captured photos of children crying as they were taken from their families. They showed images of well-dressed, cooperative young men being forced into handcuffs. Fundamentalists living outside the Short Creek community were terrified by the unnecessary show of force against their religious brethren. The Short Creek Raid is believed to be one of the most influential events in FLDS history. In the minds of the church followers, the raid proved that outsiders were dangerous and only wished them harm. It initiated a larger move toward reclusion from mainstream society. Even though Warren Jeffs was born two years after the raid and the Jeffs family had not been part of the arrests, he would often cite the event as justification for his aggressive isolationism when he eventually took over the FLDS. Rulon had been prepared for the fallout after the raid. He knew that the government and law enforcement would be watching Short Creek closely, and he sent his wife Marilyn Steed to Sacramento, California to live there until tensions between the church and the outsiders calmed down. It was in Sacramento that Rulon and Marilyn's son, Warren, was born. Warren Steed Jeffs was born on December 3, 1955. 
He was the 14th child that Rulan had fathered between his brides, and growing up in such a large family certainly played a role in Warren's development. Warren's upbringing may have a lot to do with the man he became. According to studies done at the University of Lincoln, children who grow up in large families, particularly in polygamist families, often develop more emotional and psychological problems than children from monogamous families. In fact, children from polygamous families are more prone to hostility, paranoid ideation, externalizing problems, and acute affective disorders. All things Warren Jeffs was known for at the peak of his reign. That's right. It is not uncommon for children of large families to turn to manipulation or violent behavior to set themselves apart from their siblings and gain some parental attention. However, Warren was singled out from the start. Warren Jeffs was born two months premature, and in 1955, the survival rate for preterm infants was low. Warren's life hung in the balance during the first few weeks of his life, but when he pulled through, Rulan considered him a golden child. Rulan insisted that Warren was a miracle, and that the boy was destined for great things. Warren was, without question, his father's favorite child. Here again we see the makings of a cult leader. When a parent singles out a child as the favorite, that child often develops an inflated sense of self. The child may also begin to believe that they can do no wrong. They may expect others to treat them with the same level of admiration that their parents do, and when they do not, the child may react with violence. This can greatly affect how the child learns to interact in society, and Warren's case is no different. Warren loved being his father's favorite. In fact, he lorded over his many siblings by ordering them around at his will. When they would disobey or resist, he would tattle on them to Rilan. Of Warren's estimated 65 brothers and sisters, only seven were his full-blooded siblings. Warren bonded most closely with all four of his full brothers, the brothers with whom he shared both his mother and father. These included Leroy, Nephi, Isaac, and Seth. Though the Jeffs brothers got along well on the surface, they weren't exempt from Warren's narcissism and manipulation. Former FBI psychologist Joe Navarro states that the most common trait of powerful religious leaders is pathological narcissism. It is when these individuals develop grandiose ideas about themselves and their purpose that they become dangerous. The leader does not like their word challenged and demands unquestioned obedience. Warren used his position as the favored child to convince his brothers to follow his leadership. He suggested that if they remained his trusted allies, they would win favor with their father. While Warren was charming his brothers, he was also studying their personalities and strengths closely to determine how they could be of use to him. When Warren needed protection or wanted to intimidate someone, he turned to Leroy. His older brother's quiet demeanor and large build made him rather daunting. Nephi, on the other hand, was who Warren turned to when he needed advice or guidance. Seth and Isaac, Warren's youngest full brothers, often acted as lackeys. They would run errands and perform menial tasks for Warren. Most people would not allow their siblings to control them in such a way, but Warren's brothers grew up hearing that their brother was a miracle, and they witnessed the special treatment he received regularly from their father. In time, they began to believe that Warren really was the family's golden child, and this made it that much easier for Warren to manipulate his brothers. Did Warren ever express any guilt for the way he used his brothers? 
It's not likely. Well, thanks to his father, Warren was growing up with a powerful sense of entitlement. This would have limited his ability to see how his actions affected other people. He most likely felt that his relationships with his brothers were totally normal as he was being raised to believe that his siblings' purpose was to serve him. Aren't those behaviors often exhibited by people with a narcissistic personality? Exactly. Whether this is a disorder or just a set of common traits has been disputed by mental health professionals. But narcissists are generally believed to exhibit a lack of empathy, a grandiose sense of self-importance, preoccupations with power, and a need for admiration. Most people with the narcissistic personality begin to show these traits in childhood, just like Warren. Yet, even with all these behavioral red flags, Warren's father continued to fuel the boy's desire for power and attention. Rulon kept his family heavily immersed in the FLDS lifestyle. Warren and his siblings rarely engaged with non-FLDS members or traveled outside the Short Creek community. However, all of the Jeff's children did attend Alta Academy, the FLDS school located in Salt Lake City, Utah. When Warren and his siblings were enrolled, Alta Academy was run out of a large 30,000-square-foot home owned by the Fundamentalist Church. The children who attended were taught basic homeschool curriculum with a heavy religious influence. Reading, writing, and math were all very important, but science was not a strong area of focus. Though Warren was boarding at the school with his siblings, Rulan often pulled him out to accompany him on important FLDS business. When Warren's school schedule allowed for it, Rulan brought him to sit in on council meetings where important church and community matters were discussed. For anyone else, the schedule and travel to and from Short Creek would have been grueling, but Warren loved the intensity. Having a hectic schedule also may have played into Warren's inflated sense of importance. Psychological studies suggest that society views busy people as more successful and powerful. It could be that Warren used his hectic life to leverage respect especially among his peers at Alta Academy. At school, Warren wasn't necessarily unpopular, but his strict devotion to rules and regimes made his peers wary of him. When others were playing or joking, Warren stoically focused on his studies. Yet, even as an adolescent, Warren understood that a leader must be likable in order to establish a strong following. Only when there was a certain level of trust established would the followers readily accept the leader's propaganda. Therefore, Warren taught himself to adjust his personality to fit whatever social situation he found himself in. With his teachers and the church elders, he was the quiet, well-disciplined miracle child. With his peers, he learned to make jokes and carry lighthearted conversations. By becoming socially fluid, Warren found it much easier to manipulate those around him. This was a skill that would benefit him into adulthood. As Warren's father grew more powerful within the church community, Warren saw more opportunities to build relationships and network with the church's most influential members. Whenever his father introduced him to a high-ranking member of the FLDS, Warren made a point to befriend that person in case they could be of use to him in the future. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to our story. Warren Jeff's networking skills served his ambition for power well. In 1973, when Warren was 18 years old, his father and other members of the community council made him principal of Alta Academy after his graduation. Though he only had a high school diploma, Warren had been a good student and had no problem acting with authority. The council saw him as the perfect fit for the role. 
Under Warren, the school motto became, Perfect Obedience Produces Perfect Faith. This role was Warren's first real taste of power, and it could even be considered the experiment for his future plans in the church. A former student of the Alta Academy wrote that Warren was revered by most of the staff and students. The new principal had a talent for remembering everyone's name. He also seemed deeply committed to the academic success of every single student. His devotion to the school and its attendees made it easy for people to trust him. However, the same student who claimed that Warren was liked also pointed out that the new principal reinstated corporal punishment at the school not long after he assumed control. Children were beaten with a paddle or a yardstick if they misbehaved, though never by Warren himself. Warren also restructured the school's curriculum so that each day began with an hour-long service that included hymns, readings from the Book of Mormon, and sermons written by Warren. In terms of academics, the students studied accounting, geography, computer science, chemistry, and choir. Warren personally taught all the math and history classes. A former pupil of Warren said, quote, Some of our lessons were slightly modified versions of the truth. We were taught that man had never landed on the moon as the Lord would never allow it. End quote. Another graduate of Alta Academy wrote in a blog post, quote, Overall, I rather liked going to school there, despite the fact that it was so strict. They did have a very good curriculum, and we were given lots of homework. The thing I hated the most were the apocalyptic sermons that were given every few months or so. They scared the hell out of me and many, many of the other students. Uncle Warren would go into great detail, describing how they would happen and what would happen." End quote. Note how Warren's students, some of his first followers, referred to him as Uncle Warren. This tactic was part of Warren's carefully crafted personality. He knew that by portraying himself as another member of the family, he could gain the children's trust more easily. Many former Alta Academy students recall their regular one-on-one meetings in Warren Jeff's office. The principal was known for selecting favorites and pulling them aside for private chats where he would drive home his strict beliefs. He formed close bonds with many of his pupils, and several of Warren's former students later became his brides. It was likely during his 13-year tenure as the principal of Alta Academy that Warren mastered the art of manipulation, an important weapon in the cult leader's arsenal. As principal, Warren was able to test the boundaries of fear and love until he found the perfect combination for control. Warren used the Machiavellian tactics of being harsh on his students so they would not disobey him, while also making it seem like he genuinely cared about them, which kept them loyal. While he was principal at Alta Academy, Warren married his first wife, Annette Barlow. The couple were married in 1979, and not long after, Warren took Annette's sisters, Barbara Ann and Gloria, as his second and third wives. In Warren's mind, he was completing the task Joseph Smith set out for all Mormon men, to gain entry into the highest levels of heaven by marrying and starting families with at least three faithful women. In addition to fulfilling his religious duty to marry multiple wives, Warren made a point to use those marriages to his advantage. Each of Warren's wives, from his first, Annette Barlow, to his last wife, 16-year-old Nancy Joanne Steed, a distant cousin, came from a powerful family within the FLDS. Marriage between cousins was not uncommon in the FLDS community, especially if both families were part of the elite inner circle of the church, and Warren knew that each one of these marriages would benefit him later on. 
and Warren's thirst for power and control only grew when his father was selected as the new prophet for the FLDS in 1986, making Rulon the highest ranking member of the FLDS. Like the prophets before him, Rulon Jeffs had his own plans for the church when he assumed the prophet title, and those plans were all designed to give his family more power and influence. Warren was 31 years old at the time, and he had watched his father's ascension through the church ranks very closely. When Rulon became prophet, he made Warren counselor to the church leader. Warren quickly resigned as principal of Alta Academy to focus on helping his father achieve his goals to restructure the hierarchy of the FLDS church. Rulon's first major change was to eliminate the Council of Elders, a group of high-ranking church members who helped make decisions for the community. This was a move designed to give full decision-making power and control of the community to Rulon, but few people recognized it as such. Rulon had spent years building up the trust of his fellow church members. They viewed his reorganization as the first steps toward bigger progress for the community. Rulon tested the boundaries of his power in the FLDS church and Short Creek community for 12 years. During this time, he introduced the FLDS's well-known mantra of keep sweet as a way to keep his followers in line. The phrase was a reminder to the church members to keep their emotions in check and to, quote, fill themselves up with the goodness of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Whenever a church member would speak against Rulon's actions, he would gently but firmly remind them to keep sweet, and it was surprisingly effective at quelling any discontent in the community. Margaret T. Singer, professor of psychology at the University of California at Berkeley, wrote that when a leader uses his influence to produce behavioral changes in his followers, he is engaging in the act of brainwashing. Therefore, it could be argued that Rulon was using the keep sweet mantra as a type of thought-terminating cliché to pacify church members into submission. Vanessa, can you explain the concept of a thought-terminating cliché a little more? Absolutely. Simply put, a thought-terminating cliché is an oversimplified saying meant to distract a person from conflicting thoughts. They're often used to persuade a person to change their core thoughts and beliefs on a controversial topic. An example of a common thought-terminating cliché is, freedom is not free. Some people's value systems make them opposed to war, but the phrase, freedom is not free, gives the listener a moral out and relieves the speaker from having to present an actual case in support of war. It is a very subtle form of thought manipulation. That type of manipulation would benefit Warren in his role as counselor to the church leader. In this position, Warren had a front row seat to his father's manipulation tactics, and he was paying close attention. By 1991, Rulon had completed the steps to incorporate the FLDS, meaning that the church could now own property and get loans. It also meant that the FLDS no longer had to pay taxes. Rulon filed the IRS forms and made sure that the FLDS met the IRS guidelines for a religious corporation, including having an established place of worship, a distinct religious history, and a definitive membership, among others. Upon the FLDS's incorporation, many in the community turned over the deeds to their homes to the church, giving Rulon the power to evict people as he saw fit. To this day, only about 10% of the homes in Short Creek are privately owned. It was another big step in Rulon's plan to legitimize the FLDS, and he continued this mission until he suffered a severe stroke in 1998. The incident left him unable to make public appearances or deliver sermons, and Warren saw a window of opportunity. 
For 43 years, he had acted as his father's protege. This was his chance to rise in the ranks. This gives us an interesting glimpse into the cold-hearted tendencies of Warren Jeffs. His father's health was failing, and all Warren could see was a chance to increase his personal standing and assume more control. For all the love Warren's father showed him throughout his life, Rulon ended up being another pawn in his son's game. But Warren wasn't totally incapable of affection. No. In fact, Warren's daughter, Becky, told journalist Lisa Ling that in her mind, her father is two distinctly different people, the loving family man and the zealot leader. She remembered how Warren never forgot any of his children's birthdays and would purchase them each a unique card. She recalled singing hymns with him and dancing around the living room. Becky describes her father as a loving, devoted family man, but her mother was one of Warren's preferred wives. Roy, one of Warren's sons, remembers a different man. Roy's mother was not one of the favored wives, so Roy was often overlooked by his father. He recalls very little affection in their relationship, but he still felt great respect for Warren. Becky, however, still looks fondly at the old photos of herself and her father before she knew what he was capable of. With Rulon incapacitated, Warren began to preach his personal agenda to the community, claiming that it was the word of his father. When no one questioned his authority, Warren took things a step further. Using his newfound power, he began to isolate the Short Creek community from the rest of the world. He limited internet access and controlled what media came into the town. He even went so far as to ban dogs, toys, newspapers, and any sort of public celebration. Not long after that, he also took it upon himself to begin assigning wives to male followers, a task that could only be done by the prophet. However, the children wrought from these marriages were rarely fathered by the husband. Warren had introduced the new role of seed bearers to the community. He made a proclamation that in order to keep their community strong and their religion pure, couples could no longer have intercourse unless Warren gave them permission. Only men from elite families in Short Creek would be allowed to father children, and Warren appointed a select group of 15 men for the seed-bearer positions. How did the seed-bearers operate? Warren was already limiting physical contact between couples as a display of power, but with his introduction of the seed-bearers, he added a new element. The process of this group went like this. Warren would approach a certain couple in the morning and announce that today was the day they could have intercourse. However, in the evening, three seed bearers, all wearing black robes to avoid identification, would enter the couple's home. Two of the men would take notes, while the husband held his wife's hand as the third man copulated with the woman, creating a kind of reverse Handmaid's Tale reality where only the elite can spread their seed. Warren made it clear that any couple who engaged in intercourse or touched each other in any way without his permission would be excommunicated on the grounds of adultery. The fear of losing everything was enough to convince people to obey. Though Rulon was still alive at this time, Warren had seized most of the control over the FLDS. Warren framed his new decrees in a way that made it seem like he was trying to protect the people of the FLDS from the corruption of the outside world, when in reality, he wanted to control them. You can hear the cautionary, almost scolding tone Warren used when addressing his wives and his followers in the following clip. All of you need to qualify for further ordinances, no matter what you've received. And the key word is humility, the humility of service. And make sure you're not tending your own opinion. 
Stanley H. Kath, a psychoanalyst and associate professor of psychiatry at the Tufts University School of Medicine, wrote that cult leaders often establish and reinforce a we-they mentality with their constituency. The followers are made to believe that they will only be safe and find fulfillment within the leader's established community. This is a useful tool to help religious leaders maintain power within their groups. However, in Warren's case, we can see the we-they approach take a dark turn during his time as acting prophet. Under Warren's leadership, the religion's focus shifted from the church community and fellowship to pleasing the prophet, something that went completely against Joseph Smith's original teachings. Warren made his followers believe that only the prophet could protect the community from outsiders and apostates. But in order for him to perform his duty, the community needed to please him. Warren began to condition his followers to adhere to a please-the-prophet mindset. This new ethos allowed Warren to exploit his fellow FLDS members to satisfy his own perversions. It was around this time that Warren began to use his leadership position to molest children in his community. Becky, Warren's daughter, said that she was between four and six when her father began to assault her in their home. Warren's son, Roy, stated that he was around the same age when the molestations began. Several of Warren's nephews also claim that Warren molested them when they were children. When people asked why they never spoke out against Warren, they said they were raised to believe that the prophet knows best. Roy told Lisa Ling, quote, I always felt like my father was perfect. I never held him accountable at all, end quote. Both Becky and Roy Jeffs say that right before their father abused them, he would tell them to never molest another person. The Jeff siblings say it made them feel like they were the ones doing something wrong, and it was also part of the reason they kept quiet about the abuse. Warren took advantage of his children's love for him and his powerful influence in the community to keep his victims silent. Meanwhile, as Warren's control increased and he grew bolder with his atrocities, Rulon's health was declining. In fact, Rulon never fully recovered from the stroke, and he was mostly bedridden and kept out of the public eye until his death on September 8, 2002. Immediately after Rulon passed, Warren made an announcement that he had been chosen as the new prophet. One of his first official acts as prophet was to close the Alta Academy, where he had dedicated so much of his time. He also closed all other FLDS schools in the Short Creek area and claimed that public schools were evil. He ordered all 10,000 Short Creek FLDS members to remove their children from the Salt Lake City-based Alta Academy, meaning the FLDS families now had to homeschool their children. As a result, many young people in the church were severely undereducated. There are several psychological standpoints to take when examining Warren's decision to shut down the public schools. The first is that he viewed the work he did as the principal of Alta Academy as beneath him, and closing the schools was a way to exact revenge. Though he had power as the principal, he believed he was destined for a higher position. The other, more likely scenario, relates back to Dr. Kath's theory of the we-they mentality. Warren wanted all the church followers back in Short Creek instead of in Salt Lake City. As Dr. Kath suggested, a person's environment will always dominate their individual personality. In other words, cult leaders are able to control large bodies of people with vastly different personalities if they're able to control the group's environment. 
This is a strategy we see many cult leaders use, right, Vanessa? That's right. Uh, David Koresh used a similar tactic to embargo information and keep his branch Davidians in line. Jim Jones did the same with the followers of the People's Temple. Warren Jeffs was hardly original for using this method, but it was particularly effective with the fundamentalists because of their social and regional isolation. Within a week of Rulon's death, Warren married all but three of his father's wives. Of the three he did not marry, one escaped the FLDS, one simply refused to marry him and was excommunicated, and the third was Warren's own mother. This act was only the beginning of Warren's reign. As the prophet, he now owned most of the property in Short Creek. This gave Warren the ability to eject from the community anyone who spoke out against him or his teachings, and he could do it to any individual without warning. There are reports of former FLDS members being dragged from their homes, driven far away from the community, and left with no money, no contacts, and little education. These excommunicated members lost all contact with their families, and many of them were young men around age 16. This group became known as the Lost Boys of the FLDS. They were driven out for speaking against Warren? Well, no, many of the Lost Boys were faithful to Warren, but because of the community's many polygamous marriages, the ratio of men to women was rapidly becoming unbalanced. In order for Warren to supply the elite men from powerful families with the number of wives they needed to fulfill their covenant to the church, that meant some men would have to go without wives. Rather than listen to the appeals of these men later, Warren elected to have them removed from the community before they could marry. He even had his nephew Brett and his son Roy sent away. Neither Brett nor Roy have spoken to their mothers or their family members that remain with the FLDS since they were removed from Short Creek. Warren was now effectively using fear tactics to keep his power unchecked in the church and the community. Perhaps the most powerful tool he had for keeping his followers in line was his God Squad. This was a group of devout young men that Warren handpicked to act as a sort of special police. Several members of the God Squad were Warren's personal bodyguards, while the majority of the men patrolled the community or carried out the removal of Lost Boys. No one dared speak out against Warren for fear of his retaliation, and the community was growing more complicit every day. But Warren was ready for a change of scenery. In early 2003, Warren announced that Short Creek was no longer home to the blessings of the priesthood. He said that it was time to look for a new home for the FLDS. And it wasn't long before he set his sights on a 1,700-acre property just outside of El Dorado, Texas. Join us for the next episode of Cults, when we'll zero in on the property that would become the Yearning for Zion Ranch, and on the four-year time period that led to Warren Jeffs becoming one of the most notorious religious leaders in modern history. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Remember to join us next Tuesday as we continue to investigate Warren Jeffs and the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.